Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvel Us Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings of one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, and that is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and today I'm Skyping in for this podcast from the woods of New Hampshire, whereas my partner on this project, the amazing Aaron Adams, is recording his half of the show from his home studio in Indianapolis. Hello. And I actually got to see this setup tail end of last month. Nancy yeah. and my daughter Alice and I were out in Indianapolis for the Indie Disney Meet. This is a fundraiser event that the nice folks out there do for Give Kids the World. And this is the 11th year they've done it. And this year they raised $43,000. Among the pieces of entertainment that they had for this thing was myself and Aaron doing a, a live version of our Marvelous Disney podcast there in front of an audience, which I don't know about you, Aaron, but I, I love the fact that we actually got a gasp from the audience at part of this recording. There was a clutching of the pearls there. And also we want to say hi to Teresa. She had met McConnell, who had joined us on our Black Panther podcast. She actually got to meet him in Lansing and then ended up driving down to Indianapolis to come hang out with us and, and spend time at the event. And it was just the coolest to get to hang out with someone that got to hang out with my friend just a, a couple months ago. And we got to know each other and have some fun times. It was an awesome event. And we're already making plans to go back next year, folks. So hopefully you can come out. Uh, thanks to Aaron Prince and the whole team there for the Indie Disney Meet, the wonderful hospitality and, and really did a great by us. So Thanks to them, and okay, so now let's just drop into the show, and first of all, Aaron, I want to say very early on, you were the guy who was saying Venom, 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 this movie that's coming mm -hmm. that, oh my God, people are going to really want to see this thing, and I wanted to tell you that Fandango had back, is backing you up. Back on August 29th, thanks to advanced ticket sales and that sort of thing, they have a really good finger on the pulse as to which films are the most eagerly anticipated. And going into the fall, mm -hmm. the top three, well, first one is Fantastic Beats, The Crime of Grindelwald, the, the second in that series. Then we have a Bohemian Rhapsody, which I, the Frederick Mercury story, which I was kind of surprised by. But number three, and evidently number three with a bullet, is Venom that people really want to see this horror slash superhero film. It's the uh, Lethal Protector storyline from the comic books. It's post-Spider-Man, after Spider-Man banishes Venom from mm -hmm. New York, and Eddie Brock is no longer hell-bent on just killing Spider-Man and, and all that. He ends up going out to, I think it was San Francisco or San Diego, and ends up, there's a mugger, he will protect the innocent, but he'll end up usually dismembering the bad guy. He doesn't really believe in putting them in cuffs and taking them to jail or anything like that. So it's going to be over the top. I'm still not sold on the movie. There's so many things that I just don't feel right mm -hmm. to me yet about it. But I'll check it out. And it's got to be at least better than the Venom we got in Spider-Man mm. 3 back in the day. So It sounds like it's going to be a real challenge from a tone point of view. Well, not for fans. It's for the casual audience that's going to be in for the surprise of... It's almost like the beginning of Deadpool where he does the holy bleep. Did that guy just shish kebab <laughs> that guy? This is not a family movie. 
And you're going to realize really, really quick that, yeah, it's going to be over the top and violent and not a brightly colored red, blue, spandexy, moral, upstanding hero. It's a dude in black with a alien controlling him, his mind and and just violence everywhere. Fun for the whole family. Absolutely. Now, uh, speaking of films that a lot of people are looking forward to, mm-hmm. Entertainment Weekly did a cover story on Captain Marvel and lots of yeah. interesting tidbits in the, the story about this movie. They were right up front about the fact that this is not going to be your traditional superhero origin film. I guess the way this story is structured, as it opens, I mean, we, we have Carol Danvers already a member of Star Force. In fact, she's already off Earth working with this elite military team that's based on the Kree planet of Hala. Is that right? I think so, but they only came into the universes every mm-hmm. once in a while in certain uh, books. So I remember the Kree and the Skrulls mm-hmm. battling, but it's going off of like 30 years back memory with it's so hazy back there. <laughs> One of the more significant characters in this film Marvell, who I guess is the commander yeah. of Star Force, they've got him being played by Jude Law. And in the comic books, was he Carol's mentor, or or is that something well, he they're was, doing for the cinematic universe? He was the first Captain mm-hmm. Marvel, and he, when he came to Earth, his name is Marvell, and so we as being dumb earthlings misunderstood as as Marvel. So he became known to us as Captain Marvel, but his name was actually Marvel. And when he passed the torch on, Carol Danvers became the new Captain Marvel because that was the moniker that it was that he was known by by mm-hmm. mistake. It's kind of like the whole Ford prefix from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He thought that cars were the dominant species, so he took a name after a car. (laughs) No, that's right. Oh, God. Yes. I forgot about that. (laughs) It's one of those types of really odd mistakes that Captain Marvel ends up with this name because it's off of a misunderstanding of an alien name, Marvel. Okay, now, it's set in the 1990s, and those of us who remember the the post-credit scene from Avengers Infinity Wars, we saw Nick Fury with that 1990s style pager and where this gets kind of intriguing for me is how the relationship that Nick Fury and Carol Danvers have in this movie that this is from Samuel Jackson who who did was doing an interview as he was working on the production that as Captain Marvel is getting underway Nick Fury is not get the big guy in shield that we know now with the eye patch he's he's supposedly this low level desk jockey <laughs> and, you know, it's Carol Danvers who opens his eyes to the existence of extraterrestrials and powered beings. And that's this wonderful quote from Kevin Feige about why they chose to do this with, you know, I mean, again, we've seen this character in eight other Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. and But for the ninth film, they mm-hmm. wanted to explore a period before Nick Fury had any idea that there were other heroes or crazy stuff going on in the world. When we first met Fury, when he told Tony Stark, you're a part of a bigger universe, you just don't know it yet. Well, we wanted to go back to a time when even Nick Fury didn't know it yet and really showcase and announce that Carol Danvers was the very first hero that that Nick came across. So we got Nick Fury's a Dex jockey, but there's no info out there right now about Agent Coulson. So all I want out of Coulson is him to have a mullet. (laughs) 
Oh god, that's all that's right. all I want because right. it's uh, in the nineties, and I'm sure he would have some goofy hairstyle before his mm-hmm. shield days. I just want him to be kind of like this quirky character that accidentally falls into this. I, I want him to be so raw that he can be completely goofy and see all of this for the first time. Kind of like you know they're saying that Nick Fury is going to see it for the first time. Well, it's like. Obviously, Clark Gregg's got to be a few steps behind Fury, mm-hmm. right? So he's got to be just like some innocent bystander who walks into a intergalactic battle and ends up becoming a member of S.H.I.E.L.D. along I the way. I love that idea. Oh, God. Like I, a MacGruber, you know? Oh, just, I <laughs> hope they do that. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> now, um, I, I, I have to caution folks now that the, the very next section of the show might get a little spoilery. This is a fan theory that's current, currently making the rounds, so uh, may not oh, even no. prove to be true. But there's a question now. In fact, we, we discussed out ahead of Ant-Man and the Wasp how it was going to click into place with Infinity Wars. Now, mm. of course, you know the, the question is, well, where does Captain Marvel fit between Infinity Wars and, and for that point, the, the Avengers 4? And... There's this really fascinating fan theory out there, Aaron. Uh, do you know Cull Obsidian? He's that big bruiser that we saw in the battle, the initial battle. In- this is about the banner he was wearing around his waist. He had a little there banner. There we go. That- yes. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'm familiar. Go ahead and tell our audience okay, all about well, it. Okay, for those of you who don't know, that, that Cull Obsidian, is, he was basically the big bad that you probably remember most strongly from the the opening scene in in New York where you had Iron Man and Doctor Strange and Wong battling with him when Thanos's minions had come to Manhattan in search of the Time Stone. But as Aaron just mentioned, he has an interesting sort of accessory hanging from his belt. If you freeze frame Infinity Wars, you can see that it's a piece of red, gold, and blue cloth, which is the exact same color as Carol Danvers' Marvel suit. Now, mm. longtime fans of the, the Marvel comic books know that Jude Law's Marvel character in Thanos battled many times. So what if, in order to give Carol Danvers the proper motivation to team up with uh, the Avengers in order to defeat Thanos, what if Kevin Feige, who, again, is sort of the master architect of all story-related aspects of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Spoiler, folks! Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler! What if he had the Black Order kill Marvel? It would explain that sort of trophy hanging off of Colobsidian's belt, and more to the point, you know, give Carol, who's supposedly this head of the the Star Force, a reason to join up with our surviving superheroes as they go to try to figure how to undo what's just been done. And speaking of spoilers, this cover story that Entertainment Weekly did uh, for Captain Marvel featured shots of scrolls stumbling out of the surf, which, Aaron, I, I don't know if it's even possible to do a Reader's Digest version on who the scrolls are, but do you want to try? Uh, shapeshifters from space. Oh, that works. Okay. And supposedly... They've been setting the stage for this for a while now. I mean, for example, I was told Mm -hmm. that if you were paying close attention during this past season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., there was a point where there was some scroll writing in the background sort of hinting that, you know, they are familiar with our world or that, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. But what I've heard 
from a number of folks at Disney and Marvel is that supposedly say that the next set of movies are, are supposed to take their inspiration from Secret Invasion, which is was a Marvel crossover event from that, that ran from June of 2008 through January of 2009. Kind yeah. of infamous among Marvel fans, isn't it? Or, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's one of okay. the Okay, and, and can you tell folks why? I wanted to say it was that the Skrulls came impersonated the superheroes and it ended up replacing them but half of what made it intriguing is that for this what six month series of stories you never knew who was a scroll and supposedly that's kind of what they want to do with this next phase of film all of these characters that you thought you knew and that that, that suddenly what if they had a longtime sleeper agent that they'd been working side by side with Forever. In fact, there's supposedly a theory out there that one of the reasons that Bruce Banner can't change into the Hulk in Infinity Wars is that he's actually a scroll. No. Yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> I would just occasionally throw stuff against the wall here, folks, just to see what sticks. So, other interesting side note here. One of the reasons yeah. that the folks at Disney are particularly excited that Secret Invasion supposedly is what'll be sort of the overarching thread for this next set of Marvel movies is that one of the key incidents of this crossover was the Baxter building, which is mm-hmm. the, the home headquarters of the, the Fantastic Four over the course of the story, is is sent into the negative zone, which... Mm. So this is an antimatter universe it factors heavily in the, the Captain Marvel and the Fantastic Four storylines for the comics. Yeah, the one thing about it, now that you've mentioned it, I'm so mm-hmm. excited. So far in the comics, anyway, when you're in the negative mm-hmm. zone, all the colors are mm-hmm. backwards on the color spectrum. But it's visually interesting, and I'd like to see that done cinematically at some point. So continue, please. We are in this period now where Disney continues to chug along with its its acquisition of Fox Television and Fox Movie Studios. And it won't be till June or thereabouts till this acquisition is completed. But one of the reasons that they're so excited is that they you know, could bring the Fantastic Four under the canvas. And obviously, if given the role that Mr. Fantastic and Sue and, and Johnny and the Thing all play in, in this particular Marvel crossover couldn't ask for a better way to bring them onto the canvas, so to speak. Before we move on here, though, that it's not just how Captain Marvel interlocks with Infinity Wars that's that's kind of interesting. This movie's set in the 1990s, and as a direct result, we can see characters that we've previously taken off the canvas sometimes can come back on. And these include two significant characters that we were introduced to in the first Guardians of the Galaxy film. We have Korath with uh, Jimon Hewson's and the other character, Ronan the Accuser. What they're doing with this character in Captain Marvel is when we initially meet this guy, Ronan isn't an outcast. He's, He's not a guy with extreme views who's working for Thanos, but in this, he's supposedly this high ranking member of of Cree society. So I guess maybe over the course of this movie, we get to see his downfall. Or uprising, depending on how you look at it. I guess so. So, um, (laughs) oh, and I guess since we're talking about Guardians, we've got to circle back on 
Guardians 3. Or not Guardians yeah, 3. Yeah, as of August 24th, folks, the production of the sequel has officially been placed on hold. Quick question before you go there. Has that influenced them building a new Guardians ride at Disney World at all? Oh, oh. <laughs> like, is it, are they going to scrap it? Are they still going to build it? Is that on hold? There is steel erected. There is concrete poured. There is a roller coaster that is being manufactured in a country far, far away. You can still reskin that bad boy to any other Marvel thing. It just takes someone smart to look at it and go, all right, what are we stuck with and how do we yeah, change it? Yeah, well... The original plan here was that in much the same way that the ride footage that's featured on uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout at Disney's California Adventure, they literally set aside a day during production uh, where they shot the show scenes that you see when you're inside of that service elevator. So the plan was that they had set aside supposedly two days of production during Guardians of the Galaxy 3 where they were going to shoot the pre-show film, they were going to shoot the post-show film, they were going to shoot all sorts of great show scenes that you were going to see as you zoomed through this building. There were going to be a couple of moments where it slowed down and you could register show beats and that sort of thing. And why Imagineering loved this is because they weren't going to have to pay for makeup. They weren't going to have to pay for costumes. Mm -hmm. It was going to be consistent in tone and look, and so it would fit right in. Now, because this film is on hold, but the train has left the station, Aaron. I mean, they are building this thing. It is mm -hmm. supposed to be open no later than 2020, so it will be in place and people will be enthused for Disney World's 50th anniversary in 2021. They now have to do everything themselves. They have to hire the lighting people to come in. They have to commission the costumes. They have to negotiate deals with Chris Pratt and Zoe Saldana and David Batista. And what if they don't do it? Because right now, Dave Batista has been very vocal about he doesn't care if he works for Disney anymore. He's he's ready to walk away from yeah, all of it. I know. If the cast has been, they've so far been fairly supportive of James mm. Gunn. If they'd say, no, we're not going to be doing this, do they have to find a Chris Pratt double and go that route? I guess there have been conversations at Imagineering about if they're not making the movie, does that necessarily bar us from hiring James Gunn to come in and just direct this footage? There's a number of senior female executives at Imagineering that have pushed back hard against this because mm. it's like the whole reason that James was disinvited to direct Guardians 3 was his tweets and what he said while he was working for folks at Troma. I think that's really a long shot. And, and speaking of which, there's is another interesting thing that Disney's been pushing back against, Aaron, and I'm kind of intrigued to get your take on this. The initial concern is they might have another solo situation where, again, we had, you know, Christopher Miller and Phil Lord were taken off of that film and Ron Howard was brought in and supposedly the fan community got upset. And that's one of the reasons why the box office for that Star Wars story film was, was as low as it was. You know, so the notion is that if they make a Guardians film without James Gunn, will the same thing happen with the Marvel fans? And Disney's like, now wait a minute. Look at Infinity Wars. The Russo brothers directed all of those Guardian scenes that are in that film. And, you know, there wasn't ever a complaint about, oh, the tone is wrong, or Rocket would never right. say that, or they got Groot wrong. So it mm -hmm. sort of demonstrated that it's possible 
for other directors to work with these characters. And just today, one of the ideas that was kind of floated that is the way to save Guardians 3 and, and sort of right the ship here, should they reach out and find a, a female director? The talented woman who did such an amazing job with Wonder Woman last year. Uh, evidently, that name has come up a couple of times. The reason that she would be a good choice is because she's a good director, not because she's a woman. I agree. I mean, Taika Waititi is also a very good choice because if you look at Thor Ragnarok, it had a really quirky sense mm -hmm. of humor. And if you look at Guardians of the Galaxy, they have a very quirky sense of humor. Thor Ragnarok was a intergalactic romp, so mm -hmm. to speak, because it took place on different planets. The DNA of, of that humor seems to fit well to where they could reach to a number of great directors. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it has to be female just because it has to be female has nothing to do with gender i totally agree but for disney to have that have that discussion mm -hmm. they're they're thinking about politics and not art and who's right for the yeah, job i know one of the reasons this is a, a production issue as, as well as a pr problem and i just want to see a good movie patty jenkins is a fine choice like i said earlier because she's a great director i you know i mean i don't i'm not saying that women should not be allowed into the mm -hmm. discussion i'm just saying that you have to look at the material that you have and then look at the worlds of available directors i think it would be great to have peter jackson end up directing some sort of marvel movie at some point I was really sad when Edgar yeah. Wright was broke up his relationship with Marvel, and I would love to see him enter into the Marvel universe as well. But We live in this era where this sort of executive suite kind of decision becomes a fodder for conversation and that sort of thing. In fact, it's been kind of interesting just in the past week or so to the effect of, oh my God, they're doing reshoots on Avengers 4. And does that mean the film's in trouble? And blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, it's, well, first of all, just before we get started here today, you were talking about, it's like, let's not call it reshoots. Let's call it pickups. So we'll explain the difference. Reshoot is you did something once and you looked at it. And you went, I don't like that very much. I'm going to shoot that again. And that's shooting something that you already have. And then a pickup is I intended to get this one shot, but we ran out of time. Now, you know, we're getting closer to the end and I need to grab uh, these 13 shots that were always planned, just never grabbed. And then they go out and they grab those 13 shots, they plug them into place, and those are pickup shots. And so it has been said that they were doing reshoots. And then they also said, but we're also finishing the film. We're getting stuff that we just didn't have time to grab. So because they use the word reshoots, I have no problem accepting the fact that they may be also taking time while they're getting their pickups to also shoot things a, a different line or you know just a different take of something to get something just a little bit better and that's never a problem it's always actually pretty great when the company is willing to spend that extra time and money to just make something an inch better four or five times over and you end up with all of a sudden it's a foot better than it used to be. And so I'm always happy when they're willing to go up to the last minute and push it as far as they can and, and fine tune it to the last second, no matter how they phrase it, pickups, reshoots, and whatever. Gonna, let's be honest here. We have a film that is sitting at $2 billion worldwide. So there's a lot of people who saw this movie multiple times. In fact, there's one gentleman who saw it over a hundred times who just got invited to the set. In fact, they start restart, supposedly restarted shooting on the, the 7th of September. 
he watched it over 100 times and got an invite to come down. So I will have to remember to do that next year. When Hey, Marvel, I have a life-size Spider-Man and a life-size Metal Captain America shield. I'm kind of a fan, a little bit. There so, you go. All right. Just Can saying. I, if you're, you're right. handing out invitations to the set, we're available. Now, <laughs> you know, the expectations for, you know, Avengers 4 or whatever the hell they're going to call this thing are so ridiculously high that I love the fact that they are going to go back in plus and, and look for ways to improve this film. So very, very, yep. very much looking forward to seeing what we get come, you know, spring of 2019. But speaking of things we were very, very much looking forward to, Iron Fist is just bowed again on Netflix, right? A second season? Yep. Yes, it just came out uh, in the last week or so. Aaron made the sacrifice, folk. He sat down and watched all eight episodes or ten? I didn't even <laughs> count. I, I just, you know, I glaze like a donut, and I just sit there and take it in, and when it stops, I go, all right, I'm done with okay. that one. Okay, <laughs> well, tell you what, after our, our commercial break, Aaron will tell us what he thought of season two of Iron Fist, so hang in there, folks. We'll be right back. we're back now i have to tell you aaron i am new to the binging experience in fact just this past weekend because my daughter alice and i are going down to universal for the uh first night of halloween horror night supposedly the signature maze for this year's halloween horror night is the one that's built around season one of stranger things which i i think i'm the only person oh. in north america who had not seen this show at this point shame on you i know i'm a bad person but i i, I, I had to do laundry and there were groceries to buy it just kind of there's not that much laundry nor groceries required so that you can skip out on there have been two seasons out you've had plenty of time there are no excuses accepted are where are you at have you been starting at least no we we've in fact that that's the thing i did our first official official binging experience we alice and i sat down at like four o'clock on saturday and started with episode one of season one and by midnight we had wrapped all eight episodes and i have to tell you i get it i understand completely like why, why people blithered about this but at the same time i also yeah. now get the binging experience that you know the whole notion of you you sit and consume you know an entire season of a show in in one sitting and you pick up on a lot of subtleties it was genuinely fun i mean you know that said i'm trying to figure out how to carve the time out ahead of this trip to see whether or not we can do season two but you did much the same thing with Iron Fist, didn't you, season two? I split it up over the course of two days because it comes out in, I think, three o'clock in the morning here is usually when it ends up showing up in mm -hmm. my queue. So before I launch into it, I'm going to get into the story tropes I'm mm -hmm. tired of at the tender old age mm -hmm. of 45. The hero being stripped of their powers so they have to use their inner strength or natural talent as a person to prevail. I've seen that enough. When it happens, I usually go, oh, this mm -hmm. again. Stories being motivated by a sibling-like figure who wants greatness but can't have it, while the other does not care for the greatness yet still receives it. That being a motivator for a storyline has been used since the Shakespearean days. I was about to say. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, you and, know. and so when I see that start to happen, I go, oh, this mm -hmm. again. And then potions or rituals that transfer the power from one person to another. Black Panther did this just this year. 
Iron Fist writers should have been on the clue bus and caught on to that factor and not done the same darn thing because I got to say for the third time during the season, oh, this again. I didn't love it, but take into consideration, I've never been an Iron Fist fan, so if I don't particularly care for Broccoli still, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I never cared for Broccoli as a kid, and you love Broccoli, cool, man, eat the vegetable. So Iron Fist was was me eating broccoli for a couple of afternoons of I just really didn't care for it. Now, there are some good things mm-hmm. to it. There are some some fun elements to it. I'm, it wasn't just a complete drag for me. I did enjoy a lot of specific moments. We do get to see a proper Iron Fist mask. And even though it looks right, comic-wise, it doesn't quite look right, realistic-wise. And so it was like, oh, cool. Is that cool? I don't know. So maybe some of the fans can chime in. When when you get to see the Iron Fist mask, do you, are you ready to see him in a full costume? Or was that a turnoff? Because I think a lot of Daredevil fans were turned off by Daredevil's costume when that first mm-hmm. came out at the end of season one. So voice your opinion on that. Uh, to me, it, it looked right comic-wise, but realistically, it just looked a little bit off for some reason. The fighting is a little bit better this season. Maybe it's the style of martial arts that's being used, but a lot of it can still look wooden and rehearsed. There was a very long single take of Daredevil in a hallway fight scene in season one that seemed much more improvised, even though it was probably choreographed much more thoroughly than anything on Iron Fist. It looks like the fights are not spontaneous. They're very planned. But again, that could be the style of the martial arts that they're using because you do have those awkward, you know, type positions and poses that aren't really natural. They look wooden and stiff when you're blocking and whatnot. So I don't know anything about martial arts. Maybe it's supposed to look that way, and I just don't know any better. But overall, I think I do think the fighting has improved from season one. Now, did you get to see the Defenders episodes where they... Oh, yeah. My understanding is that Iron Fist did work a little bit better in that context. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, see, the, the biggest problem with season one of Iron Fist is he kept walking through, like, every single episode stating, I am the immortal Iron Fist. Yet he kept getting his butt kicked by every random punk that happened to come by. I mean, he ended up winning the fight eventually, but it's like... If you're the immortal Iron Fist, you should be able to take down some random thugs a little bit better than that. It just didn't feel mm-hmm. right. And in Defenders, they kind of j- poked a lot of jokes at him and made him the, the butt of mm-hmm. everything. And then when he showed up in Luke Cage, he was much more chill and relaxed, and he had his chi harnessed, I have mm-hmm. to say, in those episodes. And he was a much more likable character, and throughout season two of Iron Fist, he is a a much more likable character than he ever was in season Mm -hmm. one. So there is a a vast improvement of his character, or at least how they're presenting him within the show. Now, that being said, Joy and Ward is a brother and sister duo here on the show, and they're my favorite characters on the show because they're characters with Mm -hmm. faults. They're not purely good, they're not purely evil, they're troubled, they're disturbed, and they've feel more fleshed out as a result of this as people meanwhile danny wants to broker peace amongst the triads to save the city and that just doesn't make sense to me why you know it's like you want to eliminate gangs not consolidate them into one super gang it it just his motivation throughout the season didn't make any sense to me but whatever that was the story i was given so that's the story that i had Mm -hmm. to watch i know that the defenders are street level heroes but you know 
pick a different street. It just, it, it wasn't working for me. And then we move on to Alice Eve's character, and I'm not gonna mention her name. It took me a long time up until like probably the last episode before I figured out what was going on with her. And odds are in favor, she will return to the Defenders MCU corner of the universe on someone's show because she's actually someone else's mm -hmm. villain. So we're not going to say her name, but she plays an interesting character and she'll be okay. back. And then to wrap up the review, the one problem I have, and I can be really weird about what I get upset by. The acting was good, the writing was good, and there is what I feel the biggest missed opportunity of Marvel in a long time. In the confines of the show, somehow Sokovia is brought up, and they'll willingly tie back to Avengers Age of Ultron by mentioning Sokovia, but New York seems just as crowded as it ever was, and if half the population disappeared, I really think the general public would be different in attitude. Some would be grateful for being spared. They would be kinder to their brothers and sisters and neighbors. Some would create religions around Thanos or something crazy like that, but half the planet doesn't just disappear and the rest of the world goes on like nothing happened. And this is where I think Marvel could have done a really, something very, very creative with this season of Iron Fist instead of the triads and it's not just the triads there is another overarching storyline that is much grander than that but I don't want to spoil any of that you'll discover it along the way but in the background you could have changed so much to reflect everything that happened in Infinity Wars and how those events change a whole world a whole civilization in radical, creative, fun, unique ways. And it's a thousand opportunities missed because they never once touch it. And that's the part where I cried the most about Iron Fist is what could have been versus what we got. Interesting point. Speaking of New York City, though, that all things Marvel, uh, we are just a few weeks out now from New York Comic Con, which is supposed to run... The 4th through the 6th, speaking of the Netflix series, one of the panels that people are most looking forward to is the Daredevil panel. The Marvel television panel that, that's going to be held for uh, Daredevil is, is being held off-site. It's away from the Javits. It's actually at Madison Square Garden on Saturday the 6th, which features appearances by Charlie Cox, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Joanne Wally, uh, along with Marvel's head of television, Jeff Loeb. Meanwhile, if you prefer what Hulu is doing with the Marvel characters, uh, you know, the, the Marvel One-Away show, same thing. They're going to be at Madison Square Garden, but they're there on Friday. Their panel gets underway at 2 o'clock. They're going to be discussing what happens in Season 2 of that show. On the other hand, if, if you're a Marvel animation fan, you want to be at the Javits Saturday night, October 6th. That's when they're going to be screening our Marvel Rising, uh, Secret Warriors, which kind of confuses me because a week previous on September 30th, mm -hmm. they're going to be airing this on the Disney Channel. There's an 80-minute long movie that's going to air simultaneously on the Disney Channel and Disney XD. And I have to tell you, because Squirrel Girl 
is part of the show, <laughs> I'm there. Right, 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 yeah. But the other big presentation, the one that I'm pretty sure of, of all the Marvel projects will get the most attention, is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So we've got a December 14th release date for this thing, but they're doing an enormous panel in the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden, Saturday, October 6th at 11.30, I don't know if you've been paying attention to what they've been doing uh, with this movie, Aaron, but Sony Pictures Animation has been doing a brilliant job of breadcrumbing this project. I don't know if you caught that that Shamik Moore, who's he voices uh, Miles Morales in, in Spider-Verse, mm-hmm. and Jake Johnson, he's the one who's doing the, the older past his prime Peter Parker for this project. Out ahead right. of the PlayStation 4 release of the new Spider-Man game, their exclusive game, uh-huh. they did this presentation where it was basically footage from the teaser trailer from like two months ago, but they had like four additional scenes, just four little quick things folded in. But uh-huh. the Marvel fans still gobbled it up. You got to know the guys at Sony have to be thrilled that I guess that, that when that game hit the, the the market this past weekend, they sold more copies during their their launch week than any other game this year. That's got to make you happy when you've got your your giant expensive Spider-Man movie coming to the market in just two months. It's like so there's there's actually an audience out there for this thing. There's a conversation we have to have after you've played this thing, Aaron. Especially the the way they set up evidently the next game. But, okay. but hopefully we can do that, you know, the very next time we we get together to do another Marvelous Disney podcast. So for now, I, I guess that's it for, for this particular episode. And on behalf of Mr. Adams, I want to thank you for listening in. And we'll be back with a new show very, very soon. Till then, take care. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.